If you have your copy of God's Word, and I trust that you do, let's turn together to Habakkuk chapter 2. Habakkuk chapter 2, as we're continuing our study here through this book, we now arrive um, at chapter 2. Uh, we're moving fairly rapidly through this. Uh, chapter 2 is is really a, a, a quick, uh, a speedy uh, process. We'll be here only for two weeks, today and next week, and then we'll be moving into chapter 3. Um, but this morning, I want us to look at the first four verses of chapter 2. Habakkuk chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, if you found your way there, I invite you to stand with me for the honor and the reading of God's Word. God's Word says, I will stand on my guard post and station myself on the rampart, and I will keep watch to see what He will speak to me and how I may reply when I am reproved. Then the Lord answered me and said, Record the vision and inscribe it on tablets that the one who reads it may run. For the vision is yet for the appointed time. It hastens toward the goal. It will not fail. Though it tarries, wait for it, for it will certainly come. It will not delay. Behold, as for the proud one, his soul is not right within him, but the righteous will live by his faith. You can be seated this morning. The prophet has just finished, again, secondly, second time, pouring his heart out to God there in chapter 1. Uh, as he poured out his heart the first time and cried out to God to do something, God answered the prophet in saying, I am going to do something, but I'm going to do it in a way that you would not expect or anticipate, in a way that will shock not only you, Habakkuk, but will shock the people. I'm sending the Chaldeans or the Babylonians in to bring justice and correction to my people. And there at the end of chapter 1, the prophet relayed his heart back to God and really tried to wrap his mind around and understand who God was in an attempt to understand why God would allow something like this to happen. And at the end there of chapter 1, really what we find the prophet doing is, is laying the things that he yet does not understand before God and saying, God, I don't understand these things, but I'm going to give them here, I'm going to leave them here and trust you that you will help me to understand and help me to grasp those things. And that's where we pick up this morning. And what we're going to look at this morning is just really an idea of how we are to behave in the times that we experience the same thing, when God's ways or God's purposes or God's answers to our prayers don't make sense to us, uh, when it doesn't come and when we want it or it doesn't come how we want it. How are we to respond when God moves in such a way? The first thing that I want you to notice here in this passage is the pattern of prayer. Notice what he says there in verse 1, I will stand on my guard post and station myself on the rampart and will keep watch to see what he will speak to me and how I may reply when I am reproved. The language that Habakkuk uses here points to the idea of the watchman uh, who would be charged with watching for the enemies at the city walls. In the time in which Habakkuk lived, it was very common for large cities and even some smaller ones to have watchtowers on the, the borders of the city. And there was a man and a group of men whose job it were to sit in that watchtower at all times in order to watch for enemies, to watch for those who might come in and try to siege the city. Now, in order for that watchman to do his job, what do you think he had to do? He had to be there, right? Uh, it, there wasn't remote work in the watchman position. He couldn't sit at home and accomplish his duties if he were not in the watchtower. And this is what the prophet is pointing to. He, he's talking about the idea of his positioning himself before God. 
And he points to this idea of, of the watchman, because just as the watchman would have to climb to the top of the tower, would have to separate himself, this is what Habakkuk is saying he's going to do. I'm going to put myself in the right position to know and to hear what God would say. He needed to have a directed focus and a proper positioning. When the watchman got to the top of the tower, it wasn't that he just climbed to the top of the tower and sat there. He had a job to do. He had to be continually looking out of the tower, watching for just the slightest bit of movement on the horizon. If it was night, he had to have his ears tuned out to the to the prairie or to the valley, listening for the snapping of a twig or the rustling of the brush. And as soon as he heard something, he had to re, to respond. So he was waiting there in anticipation to do what he knew he was supposed to do. So the prophet here is using this type of language as one who would separate himself, one who would set himself apart, one who would be focused and ready to do what is necessary. He uses this to direct the mind of how he's going to act as he waits upon God. He's not going to allow anything else to distract him in this. He's going to focus himself and position himself. The idea was one of utter dependence upon God. I'm not going to trust anything else. I'm not going to do anything else. I'm going to depend only upon you. But if we position ourselves in such a way, then what do we do next? James Boyce, who was the pastor of 10th Presbyterian Church, offered three suggestions when it comes to this idea of positioning before God. He said that when we find ourselves in such a place where we are questioning God or or misunderstanding God or or just really in, in a point of just don't know what we need to do next, he says we should do these three things. Number one, we should detach ourselves from the problem. Number two, we should expect God to answer. And number three, we should be persistent in our expectation. Now, as we look at these verses, we're going to take a look at each of these three. Number one, we have to detach ourselves from the problem. Habakkuk's language pointed to the idea of leaving the location of the problem and pulling away and leaving the problem with God. As he pulled away to go to the tower, pulled away to go to the rampart, pulled away to go and to wait on God. It's the idea of leaving it there and not carrying it with us anymore. Now, this morning, I wanted to read an extended quote here from Martin Lloyd-Jones. If you'll notice, he has a, he, he, we've, we've quoted him quite a bit as we've gone through this study, only because his commentary on this passage is, is, is so wonderful. And, and this extended quote this morning, I want you to pay careful attention. I usually don't read a quote this long, but I felt it was so important for, to, to, to pass along what he says here, and he says it much greater than I could. And so here he's talking about this idea of, of leaving our problems with God, of, of detaching ourselves from the problem. And listen to what he says. He says, one of the most important principles in the psychology of the Christian life is this. However, we have a perplexity, and we have applied the prophetic method of laying down postulates and putting the problem in the context of those propositions which we've laid down, but we still do not find satisfaction and we do not quite know what to do. It may be the problem of what we are to do with our lives, or it may be some situation that is confronting us involves a difficult decision. Having failed to reach a solution despite seeking the guidance of the Holy Spirit, there is nothing more to do than to take it in God in prayer. But what so frequently happens is this. We go to our knees, tell God about the thing that is worrying us. We tell him that we cannot solve the difficulty ourselves, that we cannot understand, and we ask him to deal with it and to show us his way. Then the moment we get up from our knees, we begin to worry about the problem again. 
We also tell other people about it, and from what is probably a very wrong motive. Actually, it's often the case that we are very proud of our problem. It shows that we are serious Christians and that we are wrestling with deep spiritual things. We want to let other people know about it. If we are doing this, we have not left the problem with God. If you have a problem like this, leave it with God. You do not have the right to talk about it or brood about it any longer. Now, that's a pretty powerful statement. But what he's saying is, he said, when we go to the Lord, I'm going to summarize it for you. When we go to the Lord and say, Lord, I'm going to give this problem to you. Would you take care of it? We're to leave it with him and we're not to think about it anymore. Because what have we done? We have given it to him. It's not our problem anymore. It's his problem. We've handed it over to him. We've said, Lord, I can't do this. I can't deal with this. Will you take this? And his word promises that he'll do that for us. But what we often do, as soon as we say amen, we begin to continue to think about it and ruminate over it and consider it. And then, as he says here, then we'll talk to other people about it. But we've got to leave it there. After bringing our request to God, we have to position ourselves in the best place to hear what God would say to us. Just as Habakkuk here removed himself away, he says, God, I'm giving you this problem, and now I'm just going to wait and see what you're going to do about it. We have to take our matters to the Lord and say, Lord, I have nothing, I can do nothing, and here I will wait for you. The second thing that we must do is we have to watch and listen to hear from God. This is where he refers to that we need to expect that God will answer our prayers. Now, Habakkuk wasn't just going to put himself in the right position, but he was going to do the next necessary thing. Notice what he says there in verse two, verse one. He says, I will keep watch and see what he will speak to me. So it wasn't that he was just leaving the problem with God and moving himself away. He said, now I'm going to watch and listen and see what God is going to do. He had an expectation that an answer was coming. Do we have the same in our own prayer life? When, when we pray, do we expect that God is going to answer our prayer? Do we expect that God is going to solve our problem? Or do we just merely hope that he might answer? Well, the word tells us that he hears our prayers and that he answers our prayers because he's a good and a loving father who desires to give good gifts to his children. So how do we listen? How do we hear? Well, there's really three ways that God has given us to listen and to hear what he would say to us about a particular situation, and that is, number one, his word, secondly, his spirit, and third, by his providence. So the greatest way that God speaks to us is through his word. And so we, we must be spending adequate time here. If you have a problem in your life and you're desiring to know what God would have you to do in the situation and you're not reading God's word to find the answer, then I really question is if you really want to know what God desires for you to do. Because God has given us what we need inside his word. He's given us the answers that we need for the particular problems and the situations in life. So the greatest thing we can do if we want to hear God speak to us is that we go to his word. Now, without running too far down a rabbit trail this morning, let me be clear that we don't need God to speak in a new way today. We don't need God to speak in, in different ways than he has already told us that he does through his word. So there are times when people will say, well, you know, God told me. Now, I understand often what they mean by that. What they mean by that is what we're going to talk about secondly when we talk about God's spirit as a way that he guides us and directs us. But if you hear somebody say, God told me this or God told me something else, and by that they mean that they think that they heard the very voice of God telling them something 
or instructing him in such a way that they, they consider it to actually be the Word of God, then you need to be very cautious and careful. And I say that because that's a very common trend, especially in the more charismatic, strong movements today. But now God speaks to us through His Word, but God does always, God also does speak to us through His Spirit. So what do I mean by that? Well, I mean that those feelings that guide us in our daily life, if we are pursuing the Lord, if we are reading His Word, we have felt those nudgings and promptings of the Spirit in our life. Again, that is not to say that we would say that uh, that because God nudged you to share your faith with somebody at the grocery store, that we should write that down and consider that Holy Scripture. It's a nudging or prompting of the Spirit, and we've all felt it. We've, we've seen somebody sitting on a park bench, and we feel that in this side, we say, I should go talk to them. I should go sit down with them and share the gospel with them. That's the Spirit guiding us and directing us in our lives. So God sometimes does that. He guides us and gives us answers by the promptings of His Spirit. And then God also speaks through providences. This is the opening, closing of doors and opportunities. God works through means so things happen in our lives. Sometimes we pray, God, should I do this thing? And then he so obviously closes the door that that is the answer that he has given us. So God uses his word, he uses his spirit, he uses his providence to give us the direction that we need. Now, ultimately, above all of this, every one of these should be subject to the sure and true word of God. Our feelings, even the things that we see happening around us, should all be subject to the Word of God. So if we feel a prompting in our spirit, but it contradicts the Word of God, then then we are not hearing the Spirit correctly. If something happens in our life and it causes us to be in conflict with the Word of God, then that providence is not the way that we see it. We're misunderstanding what we are looking at. Matthew Henry said, those who expect to hear from God must withdraw from the world and get above it must raise their attention, fix their, fix their thought, study the Scriptures, consult experiences, and the experienced continue instant in prayer, and thus set themselves upon the tower. So the prophet says, I'm going to position myself on the tower. I'm going to sit and watch and hear what God would say. And then thirdly, we need to prepare ourselves to respond to God. This is what Boyce said when he said we should be persistent in our expectation. The prophet knew that an answer would come. That's why he was waiting. That's why he had set himself apart. But as he waited, he tried to prepare his heart for what would come. He says this there in the end of verse 1. He says that I may reply when I am reproved. Now, he's not expecting so much correction from the Lord, but he's expecting an answer from the Lord, and he wants to respond in a right way when God gives him the answer. Psalm 73 says, when I pondered to understand this, it was troublesome to my sight until I came into the sanctuary of God. Then I perceived their end. So how do we prepare our hearts? How do we persist in this? It's more time in prayer, more time in the scriptures, and a commitment to that tenacity until it is that we know what God desires for us. Oftentimes we are tempted to give up way too early. We pray about something, we leave it with God, and then we wait and we listen And then we don't hear what we want to hear in the time we want to hear it, and so we just give up. We just walk away from it. But we must continue to persist. Go back to that concept of the watchman on the wall. The watchman's job was to watch for the enemy. Now, there was not an enemy that attacked every single night, perhaps maybe not every single week or every single month. But the watchman could not cease to do what he was commanded to do day in and day out. 
Even if he watched as the horizon for, you know, eight, ten hours a day and saw nothing, he continued to watch. When the night came and he had to listen, he sat there and he listened attentively because he knew that he must be ready at the proper moment. And brothers and sisters, we must wait attentively on the Lord when we pray so that when the Lord moves, we are ready to respond. So when the Lord begins to answer our prayer, we're not distracted by something else, but we're ready to do and watching keenly so that we may be right where he wants us to be. We must follow this pattern of prayer. But secondly, I want you to also notice the declaration of truth that Habakkuk gives here. Look at verse 2. He says, Then the Lord answered me and said, Record the vision, inscribe it on the tablets, that the one who reads it may run. Now, there's the idea here of, of a declaration of truth because the Lord has commanded him to write something down. And so when we think about how we respond to this, and the one thing, the first thing that we see here that God is telling Habakkuk is that we must be correct in our declaration. Habakkuk here was not speaking until the Word of God came. Now, Habakkuk was a prophet. He was a great man of God. No doubt he was a man of great intelligence who, had, who knew the Scriptures who, who, and knew what God had desired, and he knew the truth of God. And so he could have just stood up and began to pontificate of his own ideas and concepts about what he thought God was going to say or what he thought what God might do. But this is the evidence of a true man of God. He did not offer his opinion or his ideas, but he waited for the Word of God to come. And when God did speak, he was quick to respond. God speaks with truth and power and clarity. There is no confusion in the Word of God. So we must be correct in our declaration. That means we must wait and know that we are hearing the very Word of God. Now, we are much blessed than the prophet was because the prophet had to sit around and wait for it. But we don't because we have here in our hands the very Word of God. So when we are declaring the Word of God and we're declaring the truth to people, we must be sure that we're correct, that we go back to the Word of God and that we're not giving someone just our opinion on the Word of God, but giving the truth of the Word of God. Now, we are not prophets today in the Old Testament sense. Prophets in the Old Testament were foretellers. They were telling of things yet to come. In the New Testament, the prophetic idea is that one that is a foreteller, that's speaking forth the things that have already been established, the truth of the Word of God. But all of us have been given a word from the Lord. The prophet here was given a word from the Lord that he was going to declare, but each one of us have been given a word that he has commanded us to give to the world. And that's the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. He's given us a word that we're to declare, and it's a word which must be correct. Now, I want to emphasize this this morning, because we're not to give our thoughts or ideas or opinions about what the Bible says. We are not to acquiesce the Scriptures to the current political or cultural climate in order to make it fit in. Because this is what we see happening so often around us, is that there are sometimes churches, sometimes entire denominations who will sugarcoat or water down the Word of God in order for it to be more palatable to a lost world. But the Bible says that we are to be clear in our declaration. We're to be correct. We're to make sure that we are giving exactly what God says. Consider for a moment, do you think that it was easy for the prophet to stand up and to declare to God's people, listen, you guys have been really, really wicked. 
And we've been praying, I've been praying for God to send revival, but here's what God's going to do instead. He's going to send the most wicked nation in the world to come in and to bring judgment upon you. And it's going to be tiresome. It's going to be painful. It's going to hurt. We're going to be sent into exile for 70 plus years. All of these things are going to happen. I'm sure that Habakkuk kind of got his name crossed off of all the party invite lists for the year because this was not a easy message to declare. But Habakkuk knew that he had to give it correctly. Because if we're not faithful in giving the word of God as it is given, then we're not faithful at all. Secondly, we must be clear in our declaration. Now, I know this too sounds similar, but give me just a moment to describe the difference. He says, record the vision and inscribe it on tablets. Now, this was pretty common back in those days. They didn't have reams of paper lying around for you to use, so they would take tablets, sometimes made of wood, sometimes made of stone, and they would inscribe things in them. And the idea here was this would be placed in a in a visible part of town so that it could be read and it could be established and it could be recorded. This is really what is talked about here. God is asking the prophet to write these things down, number one, that it would be visible, but but most importantly, that the record of what God said would be firmly established. Now, when he describes this recording of the vision, in the original language, it's somewhat vague here in the English translation, but in the original language, it speaks to the idea of using language that was understandable of the people. In other words, the prophet was to use plain speech. He was to declare the the word of God in such a way that anyone would be able to read it and to understand it. I remember one preacher, and I can't remember who, so I can't attribute it correctly this morning, but I remember he said one time that the gospel should be accessible from the plowboy to the professor, that no matter where you are in the, the scale of those things, that the gospel should be proclaimed in such a way that it's easily understandable by all. So we must be clear in our declaration. That means that in our conversations, in our teachings, and for pastors, in our preaching, we must make every effort to ensure that we're clear the word to proclaim the truth of Scripture in such a way that we don't want anyone hindered from hearing because they can't understand the language or the concepts that we're using. So he says you're to record it, you're to inscribe it on the tablets that the one who reads it may run. So it's to be correct, it's to be clear, but it's also to be bold. We must be bold in our declaration. That's the last part of verse 2, that the one who reads it may run. The answer that came from God was also to be written down so they could be shared and spread. It was not only to be written down to be established, but written down so they could be shared and spread. It says here that the one who reads it may run. Now, commentators disagree on the meaning of this passage. As I studied during the week, uh, it was split about 50-50. Uh, as to what they interpret this as. Some believe that it means that the one who, that it should be written in such a way that if anybody's running quickly past it, that they'll be able to read it plainly and understand it as they're going about the business of their day, that they can see what the Word of God says. And others say that it's to be read in such a way that the one who reads it may then take off and run with the message. Either way, whichever one you want to follow, the the importance or the the picture that's trying to be placed here is that the importance of the transfer and the propagation of the message cannot be overlooked. What God is trying to declare here is that the message, once it's established, should be taken out and sent out. It should be taken by people and delivered to others. It should be taken by people and declared unto others. One commentator said this, run is equivalent to announce the divine revelation. 
as everyone who becomes informed of a divine message is bound to run. For example, to use all dispatch to make it known to others. So it's a divine message, and a divine message requires divine action. That means we're to take what we hear and to deliver it to other people. This is what Paul said in 2 Corinthians. He says, therefore, having such a hope, we use what great boldness in our speech. Because when we've heard the word of God, we should share the word of God. We should declare the word of God. We should declare the truth of what God is doing. We should not hold it back to ourselves, but declare it to everyone that we can. It was a message that was to be declared, but it was a message that was both bitter and sweet. It was bitter because it told of the coming invasion and exile by the Babylonians, but it was also sweet because it promised that in the end the Babylonians would be defeated. For us, the command remains true because we find a similar command to us in Matthew chapter 28. What did Jesus say? Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. There's the command. Take it. Declare it. Teach the truth. Now, the message that we have is very similar to the prophets. It is a message that is both bitter and sweet because the bitterness side is that we are born into sin. That we are dead in our trespasses and sins, that we cannot save ourselves, and that if you do not put your faith and trust in Christ, eternity in hell and the judgment of God awaits you in the end. That's a bitter message. But the sweetness of it is. The good news of the gospel is that God was not willing that any should perish, but all should come to repentance. And he sent his only son to come to earth, to live and to die and to go to the cross and take upon himself the punishment of his people so that we could be forgiven and have everlasting life. So we are now in the position of the prophet. We must ensure that the message that we have been given in God's word is correct and clear and that we are bold in our declaration. What did Jesus say in Matthew chapter 10, verse 27? What I tell you in the darkness, speak in the light, and what you hear whispered in your ear, proclaim on the housetops. If we are honest with ourselves this morning, I'm sure that all of us in this room hold to the idea that God's Word is true and that it is faithful, that it should not be watered down, that it should not be compromised. But if we're honest with ourselves this morning, there have been times in our life where we have been tempted to not be as bold as we should. There have been times in conversations where somebody looked at us and said, well, what do you think? And we're like, well, you know... uh, Because we have the fear of man. We have the fear of what other people might think or say about us. Brothers and sisters, let us pray that God will give us the backbone, the spiritual fortitude to be bold with the declaration of His message. To not fear what others might say, to not fear what others might think about us, but to be faithful to the true Word of God. So we see a pattern of prayer. We see a declaration of truth. Thirdly, I want you to notice the timing of God's plans. Look now at verse 3. He says, For the vision is yet for the appointed time. It hastens towards the goal, and it will not fail. Though it tarries, wait for it, for it will certainly come. It will not delay. The child of God must understand that patience is a necessary characteristic of obedience. Everything that God does is according to the calendar of heaven and not the calendar of earth. 
Each promise that God has given is given for an appointed time and not a second before and not a second after. Lamentations chapter 3, verse 25 and 26 says this, The Lord is good to those who wait for Him. To the person who seeks Him, it is good that He waits silently for the salvation of the Lord. We can rest in this waiting time. We can rest in this timing. Because it is moving towards its goal and it will come to pass. We must trust the Lord's timing. Here, in this situation... The goal that he speaks of there in verse 3 was the eventual eventual defeat of the Babylonians. We are often tempted to question the Lord and to question the time that he takes to accomplish certain things. We're often tempted to doubt the promises of the Lord when we don't see things happening in the speed or the way that we believe that they would. Listen to what Calvin said about this. He said, For to wish God to confirm to our rule is extremely preposterous and unreasonable. And there is no place for faith if we expect God to fulfill immediately what He promises. It is hence the trial of faith to acquiesce in God's Word when its accomplishment does in no way appear. At the prophet teaches us that the vision is yet for a time. He reminds us that we have no faith except we are satisfied with God's Word alone and suspend our desires until the seasonable time comes, that which God Himself has appointed." Brothers and sisters, if we prayed and God answered immediately every single time, there would be no need for faith. There would be no need for trust. There would be no need for reliance upon Him. But God sometimes holds back the answer, holds back in His perfect timing the request that we have given because He wants us to trust Him. He wants us to believe that He knows all things that are good for us, even if we don't see it for ourselves. So the prophet here had heard clearly from the Lord about what was going to happen to the nation of Judah through the Babylonians. But he also knew through the same word of God that the Babylonians were going to one day collapse on in themselves. The ones who had been so brutal and violent to to his kinsmen would one day face the judgment of God. The difference between the two being that the Babylonians didn't have a God on which to look for for grace and mercy. They would bear the weight and enormity of their transgressions in themselves and in their own bodies. Jeremiah chapter 25 speaks of this goal. The prophet says, The vision is yet for an appointed time. It hastens towards the goal, and it will not fail. The Babylonians would be defeated, although it would be 70 years after They came in and they attacked the nation of Judah, which was still yet a time in the future. So when we're talking about this, it's not just talking about that immediately after the prophet read this, that the Chaldeans came in and brought judgment to Judah. No, it was sometime removed from that. And then after that season, before after that happened, then they had to wait another 70 years to see the fulfillment of this goal, which the prophet speaks of. But Jeremiah tells us that, Then it will be 70 years are completed. I will punish the king of Babylon and that nation, declares the Lord. For their iniquity in the land of the Chaldeans, I will make it an everlasting desolation. God would answer his promise. It will not fail. It would hasten towards the goal, and at the appointed time, it will come. Now, the writer of Hebrews quotes this verse. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 37, For yet in a very little while he who is coming will come and will not delay. 
Just as Habakkuk was waiting for the fulfillment of God's word as it pertained to the judgment on the Babylonians, so too are we were waiting for, are we waiting for the fulfillment of God's word as it pertains to the second coming of Christ? James chapter 5 tells us, therefore, be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. Be patient, brethren. The farmer waits for the precious produce of the soil, being patient about it until it gets the early and late rains. You too be patient, strengthening your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is near. God has promised another judgment on the world. He had promised his judgment on Judah, and it was going to come. He had promised a judgment on the Chaldeans, and it would come in his perfect timing. And God has yet promised another judgment on the world, a judgment that is yet to come. And yet... Because it has not come, the world mocks and ridicules this promise because they don't understand the perfect timing of the Lord. And they don't understand that when the Lord says something that it will come to pass, it will not fail. The world looks and says, oh, well, if God is so great, why doesn't he do something about X, Y, and Z? Oh, you know, there's the promised second coming of the Lord, but look how long it's been and the Lord still hasn't returned. They mock it in such a way as to decry his power, but yet they need to understand that the long-suffering of God is grace and mercy towards them. They should rejoice that the timing of the Lord has yet been so long because it has granted to them another opportunity to repent. Second Peter, the Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness. What is Peter saying there? He's saying God will fulfill his promise. He's not being slow in it as the world might think because it's taken a long time. He says, but he is patient towards you, not willing any should perish before all to come to repentance. Sometimes God's delay in, in accomplishing what we've asked him to do is because he's doing things that we can't even begin to understand. We pray for the second coming of the Lord but because we, we want the Lord to come back. We want to see Christ return, and we want to inherit all those wonderful promises that he has given us. But God yet, still yet has work to do on this earth. He is still saving people and bringing people unto himself and bringing glory and honor to his name. And until all of that work is done, the time has not yet come. So we must also trust the timing of the Lord, but we must also wait when necessary. Look at the second part of verse 3. It says, though it tarries, wait for it. Psalm 27 verse 14 says, wait for the Lord, be strong and let your heart take courage. Yes, wait for the Lord. There will be times, brothers and sisters, there will be many times when we must wait to see the things that the Lord has promised. It will not always happen when we expect it. In fact, I think according to what we see in the Bible and what we see throughout the course of Christian history, the normal pattern of the Christian life is one of waiting in anticipation to see what God is going to do. God answers prayers along the way, but oftentimes there are more things that we're waiting on the Lord for than things that we have seen happen. But we trust Him because we know that He is doing those things for us. So we have to trust the Lord's timing. We have to be patient and then thirdly, we must trust the Lord's timing. Now, I know that I used that one twice, but it's important. And really, it's what the prophet does, because look at verse, th look at verse 3 again. He says, it hastens towards the goal, and it will not fail. 
Look at the end, for it will certainly come, it will not delay. Psalm 130 says, I wait for the Lord, my soul does wait, and in his word do I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than the watchman for the morning. Yes, indeed, more than the watchman for the morning. We must firmly root our uh, this idea in our minds when it comes to trust that the Lord is going to do exactly what he has promised to do, and we must trust his timing. Acts chapter 1, It is not for you to know the times or the epochs which the Father has fixed by his own authority. Then later in Acts chapter 17, And he made from one man every nation and mankind to live on the faces of the earth, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation. Brothers and sisters, there's not one thing that happens on this earth outside of the control and the rule and the reign of King Jesus. The length of our lives, the number of days that we live here upon the earth, the nations that rise and fall, the leaders that are lifted up and cast down. When sickness comes and when sickness goes, there's not one thing that happens outside of his orchestrated command and control. And we must trust that he knows the right timing to do so. Because the Lord knows what we need. He knows what we can carry. He knows what we can endure. And he will never give us more than we can endure. I remember reading a story one time about Corrie ten Boom. And when she was very young, she heard a word that she didn't understand. It was a word that she had never heard before. And it was a word that really as a young child, she really didn't need to know. But she went to her father and she asked about this word and she wanted to know what it meant. And she said, her father took a moment and he said, he said, Corey, can you carry this bag for me? Can you lift this bag? And she picked it up. It was a suitcase on the floor and it was pretty heavy, but she could pick it up. And she said, yeah, I can pick it up. She said, well, can you carry it to the train station for me? And she said, well, no, it's too heavy. I can't carry it. And he said, and, and not quoting exactly here, but he, he told her, he said, Corey, he said, there are things in this life that are too heavy for you to carry at a certain time. And he says, it's my job to ensure that until you can, that I carry them for you. And brothers and sisters, there are times in our life where there are things that we can't carry ourselves, and so God doesn't give us those things to carry. He carries them for us until the appointed time into which we can carry them ourselves. We understand that the Lord's timing is good and perfect and just, and we must trust His timing. Finally, I want you to notice we've talked about a pattern of prayer. We've talked about the declaration of truth. We've talked about the timing of God's plans. And finally, I want you to notice in verse 4, the foundation of our faith. He says, Behold, as for the proud one, his soul is not right within him, but the righteous will live by his faith. This verse offers a contrast between the life and the attitude of the heathen compared to the righteous. So there are two things that we see here. We need to recognize the things to avoid and we need to recognize the things that we should do. So what are the things that we should avoid? He says there, Behold, as for the proud, his soul is not right within him. The first thing we need to avoid is pride. Now, this is what characterized the Babylonians. They were a people characterized by pride because they were puffed up in their own strength and power. They looked out at what they were doing and accomplishing, and they thought that it was by their own intellect, by their own might, by their own ability, that they had been able to accomplish everything that they had done. They were self-righteous. 
not realizing that even in all of their conquest, that that only happened by the divine permission of God. There's not one leader, not one ruler, not one kingdom who can ever do anything besides outside of the divine permission of God, because just as God allowed them to rise to power, God can crush them back down again. So their pride was in their self-righteousness. Now, it's easy sometimes for us as Christians to look around and we see people and we can easily, we as, as human beings, we can far more easily recognize pride in other people than we can in ourselves. We look around and we see the attitudes of certain people and we say, oh, well, look at how proud they are. Look at how high and mighty or, or haughty that they are, to use a biblical term. But we are oftentimes guilty of doing the same thing. Now, we wouldn't characterize it as such. But we're oftentimes tempted to think that what we do in this life is because of us. I think Americans are even more given to this proclivity. Because as Americans, we've been told that we're a nation that has built ourselves, that we pull ourselves by, up by our bootstraps, right? We don't trust, we don't depend on anybody else, we don't lean on anybody else, we do what we need to do for ourselves. So it's easy for us to look around and see the accomplishments at our job, our accomplishments in our family, the, the size of our house, the number of our cars, the hobbies that we have, to look to all those things and say, look at what I've done without realizing or acknowledging the fact that every single thing we possess, all the money in our bank, all the money in our retirement account, our house, our cars, everything has been given to us by God. And just as easily as we have it, it can all disappear tomorrow. So we don't want to be given to pride. We want to avoid pride. Because why? Because pride leads us to unbelief. Because he says, the proud one, his soul is not right within him. Well, what could be wrong with someone's soul who is proud? They don't believe the truth of what God has said. Because what does a proud person tend to do? They don't trust in anybody else but themselves. And the scripture is very clear that we must trust in Christ. So we want to avoid pride because pride leads to unbelief. So what are the things that we should do? He says the righteous will live by faith. In contrast with the Babylonians who live their lives through pride and, and incorrect belief or unbelief, God's people are those who by their life exhibit a true knowledge of faith and belief. He's calling God's people back to what they know and to what they should remember, that they must live a life of faith. And notice what he says. He says the righteous will live by his faith. That means it's something that he practices on a regular basis. Now, this phrase is a very familiar one. If you've read your Bible any time at all, you'll recognize this verse because it's used in three different places by Paul and the writer of Hebrews in the New Testament. Romans chapter 1, verse 17, Galatians chapter 3, and Hebrews chapter 10. I'm going to read those for you this morning. Romans chapter 1, verse 17, For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. Galatians chapter 3, now that no one is justified by the law before God is evident, for the righteous man shall live by faith. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 38. But my righteous one shall live by faith, and if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. The Babylonians trusted in self and pride and accomplishments, whereas God's people would place their trust in the promises of God. What are they having faith in here? 
they knew not of Jesus. They knew not of his name. They knew that God had promised a Messiah. But what are they putting their faith in here in this moment? What is he saying the righteous will live by his faith? It is a faith that they believed in God and that he would accomplish all that he had promised to do. When they heard the vision, they believed the vision, and they trust that God would do exactly what he had said. Though the time lingered on and on and on, though others would ridicule, yet they would trust in God. James Boyce said this, faith is believing God and acting upon that belief. I want to say that again. Faith is believing God and acting upon that belief. So they're believing God's promises and they're going to act in such a way that demonstrates that they believe what God said. Now, the 11th chapter of the book of Hebrews is oftentimes called the Hall of Fame because in it, it talks about such individuals in the Old Testament and who were characterized by such faith. That 11th chapter tells us that Abel believed God. He had faith in God and he offered a better sacrifice. It tells us that Enoch believed God. He trusted in God and lived a pleasing life. Noah believed God and built an ark. Abraham believed God and followed God, setting out into a land he knew not of. And on and on and on, it demonstrates those people who had faith in the promise of God. They believed in that faith, and they believed in what God promised, and they acted upon it because they did something. It wasn't that they just believed, but they actually did something. Hebrews in chapter 11 goes on to say, and without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of what? Of those who seek him. Faith is not just a mental agreement to a belief in God. Belief in God does not necessitate a life change. Belief in God does not necessarily denote obedience. There are a lot of people in this world who would say that they believe in God. But belief in God is not faith. The Scripture tells us that even the demons believe and they tremble. So faith is believing God's promises about Christ, trusting in those promises about Christ, and then turning from our sin to follow after Him in obedience. Our faith is demonstrated by our following after Him and believing Him. So this verse is a matter of question this morning. Where do we put our trust? It's a matter of utmost importance because it says that the righteous man will live by his faith. So if you're here this morning and you're hearing these words, where is your trust? Where is your faith? This verse was the battle cry for an obscure monk that some of you may have heard of named Martin Luther. And Martin Luther was, had been sick, had been desperately sick. And after he recovered, he made his way to Rome. He, he was just desiring to do whatever he could that he thought to please God. And there was in Rome and still is today, there's a set of stairs at St. John's Lateran Church which are said to be the stairs that Jesus walked up when he was going before Pilate. He would say, well, how does the stairs from when Jesus going up, how do they appear here? Well, apparently, according to Catholic history, they were transported miraculously from Jerusalem to Rome. 
Now, this set of stairs has four different sections. There are two inner and two outer. And the two inner ones, you can't walk up because these are the ones that it says that Jesus actually walked up himself. And, and as you go up the stairs, there are places where there are pieces of glass that cover over stains on the stairs. And it is said that those stains are the blood of Jesus as he walked up to see Pilate. And you can't actually walk up these stairs. If you go there, and even if you still go there today, there will be thousands of people who will start at the very bottom on their knees, And they'll crawl up these stairs one step at a time, kissing each stair on the way up, crawling up on their knees all the way to the very top. And so Luther arrived here in Rome because it was promised at that time by the the Pope that if you climbed these stairs and prayed and kissed the stairs on the way up, that if you made it to the top, you would receive an indulgence. And so here was Luther starting at the very bottom, climbing the stairs. And this story is related into history by Luther's own son, And it said that as he was going up these stairs, that the Holy Spirit brought to his mind this verse here in Habakkuk, that the righteous will live by his faith. And as he considered it in his mind and he thought about it, all of a sudden the Holy Spirit brought to him the understanding of justification by faith alone. That all that he could do in climbing those stairs, he realized that he could go up and down, up and down, up and down, and it wasn't going to do anything between him and God. That it was only by faith in Christ. It says that once Luther realized this, he stood to his feet, went back down the steps, and went home. And so began the first fires of the Protestant Reformation. And here's what Luther had to say about that moment. He said, before those words broke upon my mind, I hated God and was angry with him. Because not content with frightening us sinners by the law and by the miseries of this life, he still further increased our torture by the gospel. But when by the Spirit of God, I understood those words, the just shall live by faith, the just shall live by faith, then I felt born again like a new man. I entered through the open doors into the very paradise of God. Brothers and sisters, there are going to be times in our life where we don't understand what God is doing. We don't understand His timing. But we must separate ourselves away to wait upon Him. We must give it to Him, and we must wait. And when the answer comes, we must declare it. And we must trust His eternal timing. But overall, We must ensure that our faith is placed in the correct place. Trusting and believing, first off, in Christ. But that our faith continues in trusting and believing in God's promises. Because the Scripture is replete with God's promises for us. The one that always comes to my mind over and over again, especially as we preach through Philippians and now Habakkuk that God causes all things to work for good to those who love Him and are called according to His purpose. We must have faith that that promise is true. We must believe and follow and to live our lives as we do. Let's pray together. Father, we thank You for this time this morning. We thank You for Your Word. We thank You for Your instruction that You give us. Lord, help us to trust You more Lord, I'm sure that there's somebody in this room this morning who, Lord, has a situation in their life that they're waiting on you. They've been praying. They've been seeking. But, Lord, the answer hasn't come.
I pray that this morning, Lord, this scripture will help them to trust and to know, Lord, that not only have you heard their prayer, but that you are doing a work, even if they can't see it, that you're accomplishing it according to your plan and purpose and timing, and that it is very good. Lord, help us to put our faith where it needs to be in believing your promises and to believing your goodness and your faithfulness 